welcome to Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, produced by the Toronto Public Library. I'm Randy Boyagoda. In this episode, Umberto Eco invites us to imagine a strange and distant time and place where it's entirely logical and necessary to wonder how a young monk can be healed of love. I was frightened to read that the sincere lover, when denied the sight of the beloved object, must fall into a wasting state that often reaches the point of confining him to bed, and sometimes the malady overpowers the brain and the subject loses his mind and raves. Uh, obviously, I had not yet reached that phase because I had been quite alert in the exploration. Near the beginning of my working life, I had the chance to move into a new office, as did a colleague of mine. Two offices were available, which were more or less identical, but just in case there were any differences, we agreed that the fairest way to determine who would get to choose first was by drawing lots. I lost. A few days after we'd moved in, my colleague knocked on the door and asked if he could just check something. He proceeded to pace, very carefully, the width of my office counting his steps as he went. Obviously, he was worried that I might have had a pinky length more space than he did. Obviously, he was a professor. The fierce pettiness of academic life is legendary. David Foster Wallace compared professors to great white sharks fighting in bathtubs. While many people have been credited with the observation that the reason academic politics can be so vicious is that the stakes are so low. Now, keeping this in mind, imagine what it must have been like for professors who had to work with Umberto Eco. When he finished his dissertation at the University of Turin in the mid-1950s, his advisor told him it read like a whodunit story. The subject, incidentally, was the aesthetics of Thomas Aquinas. Eco was appointed the first professor of semiotics at the University of Bologna, making him a prominent scholar in a field that would have seemed very new at a university founded in the year 1088. For decades, he generated serious scholarship and developed an international academic profile, while also writing cerebral and accessible and popular nonfiction and contributing columns to national newspapers in his native Italy. Also, he was beloved of his students and was known to stay out late and discuss ideas and culture over cheap wine and cigarettes. How's that for an impressive run as a professor? But wait, that's just the prologue. In 1980, at the age of 48, he published his first novel, a 500-page intellectual murder mystery set in a 14th-century monastery that, from a $4,000 advance, went on to sell 10 million copies in 30 languages. In so doing, Echo was transformed from a very impressive academic to a global literary superstar. Thereafter, he continued with his scholarship of nonfiction and wrote a series of subsequent novels, all of which featured plots and characters as unabashedly high-minded as they were plot-driven and playful, sometimes even playfully, sharp. That combination of qualities owed a great deal to the author himself, who was generally at ease with his fame. He explained his 1980s weight gain as the result of too many rich meals and martinis in business class during flights across the Atlantic for book launches, if not always with the backbiting he had to endure from fellow members of each of his guilds. And, not surprisingly for a historical novelist and academic, Umberto Eco had a long memory. In a 1989 review entitled Reader, 
I hated it, Salman Rushdie ripped apart Echo's novel Foucault's Pendulum. Twenty years later, the two of them appeared on stage together at a literary festival. Of all the works Echo could have read from, can you guess which one he chose? I haven't said much yet about what you're about to hear. Selections in both languorous, slightly labored English and lyrical, nearly electric Italian from The Name of the Rose. Whether you've read it already or plan to, you will now just enjoy following Echo's giving voice, together to very abstruse dilemmas of the mind and universally recognizable problems of the heart. As with his narrator's wondering, quote, how can a young monk be healed of love? One last thing before we hear from Echo himself. He loved Toronto, and came here many times over the course of his public life to read at Harbourfront and also at the Metro Reference Library, and also at the University of Toronto. Early in the name of the rose, he name-checks Etienne Gilson, the preeminent medievalist of the 20th century and longtime praises of the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies at St. Michael's College, on the east side of the University of Toronto's downtown campus. A close friend and colleague of professors in Italian and semiotics, Echo also loved, like few others, Robarts, the brutalist concrete main research library at U of T, and he credited it as one of the inspirations for the very important library at the heart of his most famous novel. If ever you visited that library, remember this observation you are about to hear from the author himself, that, quote, it's cold in the scriptorium. Now imagine this big-brained, big-hearted man standing there, surrounded by books and scholars, imagining mischief and murder. So now, without further ado, tonight's guest, Professor of Semiotics and the author of The Name of the Rose, which after making a big sensation in Europe for the past three years, is now doing the same thing in North America and has already over 60,000 copies in print. Please welcome Umberto Eco. Well, as you probably suspected, in Italy we speak Italian, and that means uh, that English is not my, my, my language, and I am pretty terrified by this perspective of uh, reading in English. I would have preferred to have a candid conversation with you, because by reading in English, the problem is not to make me understandable or not, but to spoil my novel. So it would be uh, <clears throat> years later, as a grown man, I had occasion to make a journey to Italy sent by my abbot. I couldn't resist temptation. And on my return, I went far out of my way to revisit what remained of the abbey. The two villages on the slopes of the mountain were deserted, the lands around them uncultivated. When I climbed up to the top, a spectacle of desolation and death appeared before my eyes, which moistened with tears. Of the great and magnificent constructions that once adorned that place, only scattered ruins remained as it happened before with the monuments of the ancient pagans in the city of Rome. Ivy covered the shreds of the walls, columns, the few architraves still intact. 
weeds invaded the ground on all sides, and there was no telling where the vegetables and the flowers had once grown. Only the location of this cemetery was recognizable because of some graves that still rose above the level of the terrain. Sole sign of life, some birds of prey hunted lizards and serpents that, uh, like basilisks, slithered among the stones or crawled over the walls. Of the church door, only a few trays remained eroded by mold. Half of the tympanum survived, and I still glimpse there, dilated by the elements and dulled by lichens, the left eye of the enthroned Christ and something of the lion's face. The edificium, except for the south wall, which was in ruins, seemed yet to stand and defy the course of time. The two outer towers over the cliff appeared almost untouched, but all the windows were empty sockets whose limey tears were rotting vines. Inside, the work of art destroyed became confused with the work of nature, and across vast stretches of the kitchen, the eye ran to the open heavens through the breach of the upper floors and the roof, falling like fallen angels. Everything that was not green with moss was still black from the smoke of so many decades ago. Poking about in the rubble, I found at times scraps of parchment that had drifted down from the scriptorium in the library and had survived like treasures buried in the earth. I began to collect them, as if I were going to piece together the torn pages of a book. Then I noticed that in one of the two towers there rose, tottering but still intact, a circular staircase to the scriptorium, and from there, by climbing a sloping bit of the ruin, I could reach the level of the library, which, however, was only a sort of gallery next to the outside walls, looking down into the void at every point. Along one stretch of wall, I found a bookcase, still miraculously erect, Having come through the fire, I cannot say how. It was rotted by water and consumed by termites. In it, there were still a few pages. Other remnants I found by rummaging in the ruins below. Mine was a poor harvest, but I spent a whole day ripping it, as if from those diziecta membra of the library a message might reach me. Some fragments of parchment had faded, others permitted a glimpse of an image's shadow or the ghost of one or more words. At times I found pages where whole sentences were legible, more often intact bindings, protected by what had once been metal studs. Ghosts of books, apparently intact on the outside but consumed within, Yet, sometimes a half-page had been saved, an incipit was discernible, a title. 
I collected every relic I could find, filling two traveling sacks with them, abandoning things useful to me in order to save that miserable hoard. Along the return journey and afterward at Melk, I spent many, many hours trying to decipher those remains, often from a word or a surviving image I could recognize what the, wo the work had been. When I found in time other copies of those books, I studied them with love, as if destiny had left me this bequest, as if having identified the destroyed copy were a clear sign from heaven that said to me, Tolle et lege. At the end of my patient reconstruction, I had before me a kind of lesser library, a symbol of the greater vanished one, a library made up of fragments, quotations, unfinished sentences, amputated stumps of books. The more I reread this list, the more I am convinced it is the result of change, chance and contains no message. But these incomplete pages have accompanied me through all the life that has been left me to live since then. I have often consulted them like an oracle, and I have almost had the impression that what I have written on these pages, which you will now read, unknown reader, is only a cento, a figured hymn, an immense acrostic that says and repeats nothing but what those fragments have suggested to me, nor do I know whether thus far I have been speaking of them or they have spoken through my mouth. But whichever of the two possibilities may be correct, the more I repeat to myself the story that has emerged from them, the less I manage to understand whether in it there is a design that goes beyond the natural sequence of the events and the times that connect them. And it is a hard thing for this old monk on the threshold of death not to know whether the letter he has written contains some hidden meaning or more than one or many or known at all. <clears throat> but is this inability of mine to see is perhaps the effect of the shadow that the great darkness as it approaches is casting on the aged world. As to be gloria nunc Babylonie, where are the snows of yesteryear? The earth is dancing the dance of Macabre. At times it seems to me that the Danube is crowded with ships, loaded with fools, going toward the dark place. All I can do now is be silent. Oh, quan salubre, quam iucundo et suave est seder in solitudine, et tacere, et loqui cum Deo. Soon I shall be joined with my beginning, and I no longer believe that it is the God of glory of whom the abbots of my order spoke to me, or of joy, as the minorites believed in those days, perhaps not even of piety. Gott ist ein lauter nicht.
hinrührt kein nun noch hier. I shall soon enter this broad desert, perfectly level and boundless, where the truly pious heart succumbs in bliss. I shall sink into the divine shadow, in a dumb silence and an ineffable union, and in this sinking all equality and inequality shall be lost, and in that abyss my spirit will lose itself and will not know the equal or the unequal or anything else, and all differences will be forgotten. I shall be in the simple foundation, in the silent desert where diversity is never seen, in the privacy where no one finds himself in his proper place. I shall fall into the silent and uninhabited divinity where there is no work and no image. It's cold in the scriptorium, my thumb aches. I leave this manuscript, I do not know for whom, I no longer know what it is about. Stat rosa pristina nomine, nomina nuda tenemus. Uh, this is a, well, for, for those a silent majority who has not written the, uh, read the book, uh, this is a chapter more or less in the middle. Uh, the narrator, Azzo, at the age of 18, being a novice and a monk, uh, while has a strange accident that shouldn't uh, happen to young monks, uh, is a love affair with a, with, a, with a girl which lasts for a few minutes, uh, the only few minutes in his life. And the day uh, after he is caught by many, uh, many strange feelings that he, he feels for the first time in his life. And during the night of visiting the library, he comes across, as said here, to a book uh, full of Arab and Christian quotations explaining what the love sickness is. And the, the text is full of parentheses in which uh, Azzo uh, comments uh, in a sort of stream of consciousness what he is reading because he recognized that uh, speaking of something is just feeling in this moment. But at a certain point, and just as we were moving around the rooms of the South Tower, known as Leones, my master happened to stop in a room rich in Arabic works with odd optical drawings. And since we were that evening provided not with one but with two lamps, I moved, in my curiosity, into the next room, realizing that the wisdom and the prudence of the library's planning had assembled along one of its walls books that certainly couldn't be handed out to anyone to read because they dealt in various ways with diseases of body and spirit and were almost always written by infidel scholars. 
And my eye fell on a book, <clears throat> not large, but uh, adorned with miniatures, far removed, luckily, from the subject of flowers, vines, animals in pairs, some medicinal herbs. The title was Speculum Amoris by Maximus of Bologna, and it included quotations from many other works, all on the malady of love. As the reader will understand, I didn't require much once more to inflame my mind, which had been numb since morning, and to excite it again with the girl's image. <clears throat> All the day I had driven myself to dispel my morning thoughts, repeating that they were not those of a sober, balanced novice, and moreover, since the day's events had been sufficiently rich and intense to distract me, my appetites had been dormant so that I thought I had freed myself by now from what had been but a passing restlessness. Instead, I had only to see that book and I was forced to say the Te Fabula Narratur, and I discovered I was more sick with love than I had believed. I learned later that uh, reading books of medicine, you are always convinced you feel the pains of which they speak. So it, it was that the mere reading of those pages glanced at uh, hast hastily in fear that William would enter the room and ask me what I was so diligently investigating, uh, caused me to believe that I was suffering from that very disease whose symptoms were so splendidly described that if on the one hand I was distressed to discover I was sick and on the infallible evidence of so many auctoritates, on the other I rejoiced to see my own situation depicted so vividly, convincing myself that even if I was ill, my illness was, so to speak, normal, inasmuch as countless others had suffered in the same way, and the quoted others might have taken me personally as the model for their descriptions. <clears throat> so I was moved by the pages of Ibn Hazm, who defines love, as a rebel illness whose treatment lies within itself, for the sick person doesn't want to be healed, and he who is ill with it is reluctant to get well, and God knows this was true. And I, I realized why that morning I had been so stirred by everything I saw. It seems that love enters through the eyes, as Basil of Ansira also says, and unmistakable symptom, he who is seized by such an illness display an excessive gaiety while he wishes at the same time to keep to himself and seek solitude as I had done that morning, while other phenomena affecting him are violent restlessness and an awe that makes him speechless. I was frightened to read that the sincere lover, when denied the sight of the beloved object, must fall into a wasting state that often reaches the point of confining him to bed, and sometimes the malady overpowers the brain and the subject loses his mind and raves 
uh, obviously I had not yet reached that phase because I had been quite alert in the exploration of the library. But uh, I read with apprehension that if the illness worsens, death can ensue. And I asked myself whether the joy I derived from thinking of the girl was worth this supreme sacrifice of the body, apart from all due consideration of the soul's health. I learned further <coughs> from some words of Saint Hildegard that the melancholy humor I had felt during the day, which I attributed to a sweet feeling of pain at the girl's absence was perilously close to the feeling experienced by one who strays from the harmonious and perfect state man experiences in paradise and this nigra et amara melancholy is produced by the breath of the serpent and the influence of the devil an idea shared also by infidels of equal wisdom, for my eyes fell on the lines attributed to Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Arazi, who in a liber continence identifies amorous melancholy with lycanthropy, which drives its victim to behave like a wolf. His description clutched at my throat. First, the lovers seem changed in the external appearance, their eyesight weakens, their eyes become hollow and without tears, their tongue slowly dries up and postules appear on it, and the whole body is parched and they suffer constant thirst. At this point, they spend the day lying face down and on the face and the tibias marks like dog bites appear. And finally, the victims roam through the cemeteries at night like wolves. <laughs> finally, I had no more doubts as to the gravity of my situation when I read quotation from the great Avicenna who defined love as an assiduous thought of a melancholy nature born as a result of once thinking again and again of the features, gestures, or behavior of a person of the opposite sex. With what vivid fidelity had Avicenna described my case. It doesn't originate as an illness, but it's transformed into illness when remaining unsatisfied, it becomes obsessive thought. And why did I feel so obsessed? I who, God forgive me, I had been well satisfied, or, or was perhaps what had happened the previous night, not satisfaction of love, but how is this illness satisfied then? And so there is an incessant flutter of the eyelids, irregular respiration, now the victim laughs, now weeps, and the pulse throbs, and indeed my throbbing and my breathing stopped as I read those lines. Avicenna advised an infallible method, already proposed by Galen, for discovering whether someone is in love. Grasp the wrist of the sufferer and utter many names of members of the opposite sex until you discover which name makes the pulse accelerate. 
I was afraid my master would enter abruptly, seize my arm, and observing the throbbing of my veins, my secret of which I would have been greatly ashamed. Alas, as remedy, Avicenna suggested uniting the two lovers in matrimony, which would cure the illness. <laughs> truly, truly was an infidel, though a shrewd one, because he didn't consider the condition of the Benedictine novice thus condemned never to recover, or rather consecrated through his own choice or the wise choice of his relatives, never to fall ill. Luckily, Avicenna, though not thinking of the Cluniac order, didn't, did consider the case of lovers who cannot be joined and advised as radical treatment, hot baths. Was Berenger trying to be healed of his lovesickness for the dead Adelmo? But could one suffer lovesickness for a being of one's own sex? Or was that only bestial lust? And was the night I spent perhaps not bestial and lustful? No, no, of course not. I told myself at once uh, it was most sweet. And then immediately added, no, you are wrong, Azzo. It was an illusion of the devil. It was most bestial. And if you seen it in being a beast, you sing all the more now in refusing to acknowledge it. <laughs> but then I, I, I read again in Avicenna that there were also other remedies. For example, enlisting the help of an old and expert woman who would spend, of old and expert women who would spend their time denigrating the beloved. And it seems that old women are more expert than men in this task. Perhaps this was the solution, but I couldn't find any old women at the Abbey, or, or, or young ones, actually. And so I would have to ask some monk to speak ill to me of the girl, but who? And besides, could a monk know women as well as an old gossip would know them? The last solution suggested by the Saracen was truly immodest, for it required the unhappy lover to couple with many slave girls, a remedy quite unsuitable for a monk. <laughs> and so I asked myself finally, how can a young monk be healed of love? Is there truly no salvation for him? Should I perhaps turn to Severinus and his herbs? I did find a passage in Arnold of Villanova, an author I had heard William mention with great esteem, who had it that uh, lovesickness was born from an excess uh, of humors and pneuma when the human organism finds itself in an excess of dampness and heat because the blood which produces the generative seed increasing through excess produces excess of seed or a complexio venerea and an intense desire for union in man and woman. There is an estimative virtue situated in the dorsal part of the median ventricle of the encephalus, what's that, I wondered, whose purpose is to perceive the intensity 
the intensive intentiones perceived by the senses, and when desire for the object perceived by the senses becomes too strong, the estimative faculty is upset and it feeds only on the phantom of the beloved person. Then there is an inflammation of the whole soul and body as sadness alternates with joy because heat, which in moments of despair descends into the deepest parts of the body and chills the skin, in moments of joy rises to the surface, inflaming the face. The treatment suggested by Arnold consisted in trying to lose the assurance and the hope of reaching the beloved object so that the thought would go away. Why? In that case, I am cured or nearly cured, I said to myself, because I have little or no hope of seeing the object of my thoughts again, and if I saw it, no hope of gaining it, and if I gained it, none of possessing it again, and if I possessed it, of keeping it near me, because of both my monkish state and the duties imposed on me by my family station. I am saved, I said to myself, and I closed the book and collected myself just as William entered the room. Umberto Eco was born in the Piedmont region of Italy in 1932. He grew up a devout Catholic and received his PhD at the University of Turin in 1956. He lectured at his alma mater and worked in Italian media and publishing until 1971, when he was appointed the first professor of semiotics at the University of Bologna, Europe's oldest university. A polyglot and prodigious scholar and popular columnist, Eco gained worldwide fame with the publication of The Name of the Rose in 1980. Subsequently, he published six other novels that were consistent bestsellers in multiple languages, taught at leading universities in North America and Europe, and won an array of honors and prizes and honorary doctorates. Married with two children, Echo died in 2016. This audio recording of Umberto Echo, recorded on stage at Harborfront Reading Series in 1983, is used with the kind permission of La Nave di Tessio and the estate of Umberto Echo, as well as the Toronto International Festival of Authors. Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, is a year-long podcast series that celebrates 40 years of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. It's produced by the Toronto Public Library. The executive producer is Gregory McCormick. This episode was produced by Gregory McCormick and me, Randy Boyagoda, with technical support from George Panayotu, who, I want to add, has been a source of great insight, care, and remarkable patience, as I've recorded and re-recorded and re-re-recorded these episodes in a child's bedroom during the pandemic. Further technical support has come from Michelle DeMarco, with marketing support from Tanya Oleksik, and research support from Marcella Van Run, who, by happy coincidence, had started reading The Name of the Rose the week before she was asked to research Echo's life and work for this episode. For more about Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa, visit writersoffthepage.ca, where you will find links to the books mentioned in each episode, and links to other relevant materials in TPL's collections. For all of Toronto Public Library's podcast series, check out tpl.ca slash podcasts. Music is by Yuka. 
I'm Randy Boyagoda, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa. Tifa.